Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of the Cheeky Natives. Hi. So, I suppose this episode and these episodes that we're recording today are quite special because we are at the King's Big Book Fair, uh, 2019 edition. Uh, And there's some interesting authors that are, you know, coming here. And we are going to have the opportunity this morning to talk to one of them. Yes. So, you know, Alma likes to say we like to read the blurb. <laughs> and uh, then we, we want to, you know, give you a taste of what is happening. Yes. So we're going to read you a little bit of the blurb and then also introduce our guest today. So we'll be talking to the author of a book called We Don't Talk About It Ever, mm. written by Desiree Ann Martin, a memoir, a girl who searched for love but found destruction instead. Mm. Now, before I read the blurb, I just want to say, every now and then I had to go back to the beginning of the book to be like, this is a memoir. It's not fiction. It's not a like, movie. It's not a movie. This is actually someone's life. These yeah. things really happened. So the blurb goes as follows. In the 1980s, apartheid Cape Town, five-year-old Desiree Ann is, grapple, is gr- grappling with how she's going to turn her tar baby doll skin into soft lily white. She doesn't know how to force her father to stop drinking or gambling or make her mother love her and get boys and men to stop touching her in secret. She learns how to smooth the pen through secret masturbation and lying. As she grows up, she begins to understand the rules of living in a depressed family and fractured community. Mm. Was I in trouble? Were they going to finally make sense of everything that had been happening to me? But no one said a word. I soon learned that this is how it worked in my family. We never talked about anything, ever. Mm. In her late teens, laden with awkwardness of bushy, unruly hair and a body rounder than Wimbles, Desiree Ann is forced to confront her coloured identity crisis. She turns to self-harm, disordered eating, the thrill of petty theft and escapism through books and acting. Although she wins a place to study drama at UCT, sensing her parents cannot afford the tuition, she leaves for the UK where she gets lost in clubs and polls. On her return to South Africa, she embraces the ecstasy trance club scene, and when she meets Darren, a heroin addict, her search for love descends into a hellish self-destructive spiral as she introversely a heroin addict. In her harrowing debut novel of the darkness of addiction and finding recovery, Desiree Annan uncovers her real voice to brilliantly write about things that were previously left unspoken. Mm. Desiree Ann Martin is a published poet addiction counsellor, postgraduate student, full-time wife and mother, and part-time warrior woman. A recovering addict, she believes caffeine, cigarettes, coffee, and bacon are the four major food groups. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome, Desiree. Thank you so much for for having me. I'm so excited. I feel like I'm in the presence of celebrity here. (laughs) (laughs) No, I listen to your podcast like some people watch Game of Thrones. (laughs) (laughs) At least we're on the same level as Game of Thrones. I have heard probably all week. So exciting to have you on... On the podcast, and we're particularly excited about your book, which is a memoir and is so deeply personal and delves into some really harrowing and very painful themes as well. Mm-hmm. So the book is called We Don't Talk About It Ever, yeah. which is quite an interesting title considering that it is a memoir. I want to know, how did you come to this decision to write what is such a deeply personal and quite private story as well? I can honestly tell you that I came to a point in my life where I felt suddenly compelled to tell the truth of my story. I had started making sense of it and I made more sense of it as I wrote the book. 
but I wanted to break the cycle. Um, the rule of we don't talk about it ever. I wanted to smash that pattern. Mm. I wanted to break that habit. I didn't want to pass that legacy on to my children. Mm. So I felt compelled to tell my story in the hopes that first it would be a liberating experience for me and also that perhaps that it would resonate with some people in some significant way. Mm. You've spoken about your children and uh, you want them to not carry this legacy. At some point your kids are going to read the story. Um, your daughter, just from how you've described her, your eldest daughter sounds like she's quite intelligent. Yeah. She's probably already reading. She is. She's 11. And does she know that you're a writer? She does. And she, she knows that I have a book. And um, I've said that she's not allowed to read it until we have a very long conversation first. Mm. But she, she is curious about it. And uh, like she overheard a radio interview one day. And then... Um, she, she, I got into the car after the interview and she said, Mom, were you a sex worker? And I was like, um, yes, I was. And there was silence. And then she just went, you. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the end of that conversation. But, she, she, but I'm very open with her. If she asks me questions, I do answer them. Um, I do use discernment because there's some things that are just not age appropriate. Mm. But she does know about um, my addiction and my recovery and all the main people in her life, like her stepdad and her dad are in recovery. And so she knows that we have pasts. And she's very curious about it. So she's always going, so tell me a secret. So I'm like, no. <laughs> <laughs> no uh, so um, in, in talking about, y you speak about writing the book. And in speaking about writing the book, in a way for me, I felt you, you speak about reclaiming your voice. Mm. Throughout your childhood, there seems to be a invisibility mm. around mm. the things that happened to you, around the things that are happening in your family. Yeah. So one of the, the, the themes that we really pulled out of the book, which we wanted to spend some time talking about, mm. was the childhood trauma. There is a lot that happens to you as a child, mm. right? I read that and I'm like, she's 10. <laughs> she's 15. I'm like, I don't even remember like that time <laughs> in my life. Yeah. but. I, I know that there's some things that stick to us at a cellular level, mm. you know, the trauma. the trauma. And I wanted us to speak a bit about like the childhood trauma. So like mm. walk us through some of the, the, the things that happened to you as a child. Um, and I have such vivid recollections of it and that's why it comes through, I think, quite viscerally in the mm. book. Mm -hmm. And um, because, um, because they were my own experiences and I wasn't allowed to talk about them. I was taught to keep secrets. I was very good at it. I was sworn to secrecy in terms of the childhood sexual abuse that I experienced, um, the domestic violence that was happening at home, um, the, the alcoholism, the, the codependency, um, all of these things that I, I bore witness to, but um, I felt invisible. Mm. Um, I also felt like, um, I couldn't speak about these things because we weren't speaking about any of the things, our experiences, our emotions. We just didn't do that. And what's and really interesting is how you knew when certain things were happening. There's a moment in the book when you speak about your your one of your elder cousins basically saying, show me and I'll show yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. And you're like, I know you had a feeling that this was wrong yeah. and that he knew that this was wrong. Yeah. So there was also some sort of agency and some sort of 
like these things that are kept in secret are really bad things that's yeah. why people want to keep them in secret and to add to that is also for me it was a reinforcement of the idea that children are actually quite aware beings oh, i think yes. we have a sense and we and particularly in our communities we treat children as though they are extensions of ourselves and they're yes. they're far away they have no sense of agency they have no sense of understanding and this book in many ways right the revisiting of that trauma and how it affects you as an adult mm. also reinforces that 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 children are actually very sentient beings oh, who feel and who experience and who are able to understand I mean the way in which you go into analysis of your parents relationship even as a child yeah. speaks to an awareness of of children that we often negate you yeah. know and and the ways in which that childhood trauma then goes on to affect us as, as adults adult, absolutely and I think I mean we uh, and and I've raised my my goals differently to respect them as these 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 sensitive um, aware human beings and not as to you know just to put them on the side and say that they should be seen and not heard mm -hmm. which was the case with me but because of the things that had happened to me I became hyper vigilant mm -hmm. I became like a detective and I made a decision and I write about it in the book that I had to take care of myself mm -hmm. so I had to discern what was right from wrong and um, from your question it was a case of um, I knew intuitively and instinctively that that this was not right, um, that some of these things um, were just were just wrong on so many levels. But because no one spoke about it, and because no one sat me down and said, you know, this is this is how the world is, and and we're here to protect you, and and this is wrong, and um, they we we just carried on as the the. It, it normalized dysfunction, mm. if that makes sense. Mm. It absolutely normalized dysfunction. But a part of me did know, and that's why I started lying at such a young age, because I did know that if I told the truth, that either I'd get into trouble, my parents would get into trouble, or um, or something bad would happen. Mm. That was the message that was passed on to me. Like, if you don't pretend that everything's okay, then something bad is going to happen. I, I found that your relationship with your brother and then with your parents particularly interesting. Because um, your brother just seems to be someone who's, who, who's living, mm. right? Who's just going with the flow. It's just like, I'm here yeah. and that's it. Yeah. So there isn't much protection that comes from him. Mm. Um, and, and, and it's really challenging as a young girl to, you know, believe that, that these older people who are here to protect you, but they don't protect you. Mm. And then I, I honestly felt reading the interactions between you and your mom. I felt she was a narcissist. <laughs> I honestly felt she was a narcissist. And I remember this particular moment in the book where she chucks you with papers yeah. to basically try and just to, to make her in my dad exactly yeah. and i'm just but like, she also wow. in in that in that instance she made it my responsibility because yes. she was saying um and she's showing me these divorce papers and she's saying but i suffered because of you kids yeah. you know and yeah. i was like why <laughs> you know you shouldn't have bothered um but it was it was making me feel responsible for the years of unhappiness that I had witnessed and it was um, unveiling a secret and trying to and changing my relationship and how I viewed my dad as well um, without his permission so it was and it was a bizarre interaction because because we didn't speak the truth and here she was presenting me with this truth because she thought I was old enough to understand it 
but it was so damaging on so many levels, you know. How do you think that particular moment, now that you wrote the book and then had a chance to look back, mm -hmm. how do you think that moment firstly redefined your relationship with your mother? Mm -hmm. And how did it then affect, because you speak quite deeply about the ways in which you've chosen to parent your children differently. Mm -hmm. And I feel like a lot of that was inspired by that moment. Yeah. So how did that moment retrospectively yeah. redefine firstly your relationship with your mother, but also then your subsequent desire to parent your children in a different way? Because we don't often talk, talk about toxic relationships with mothers i think mm. we we have this idea of motherhood as almost like a martyrdom you know and yeah. you, it's all sacrificing and all women are meant to do it yes, and, and it's supposed to come so naturally, naturally and, and there's and a sense of nurturing oh, that comes with it and i, and I think that's a false dichotomy so doesn't at all and i'm the first person and people know this about me to say that I'm, I'm not a maternal mother. It's like I had to learn how to be a parent. It didn't come naturally to me. I didn't glow with expectant motherhood. <laughs> or, and, I, and, and then I had these helpless like infants and I was like, and I was so selfish because I'm inherently selfish. I was like, what am I supposed to do with this now? <laughs> you know what I mean? But in, in that moment, I became I so ang angry with my mom. Yes. Um, and, I, and I didn't trust um her and um it also changed my relationship with my dad because i viewed him differently because now he had uh, and i don't want to give away too much mm, he had this, uh, this, uh, this this other thing going on mm, yes. and 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 it's been happening for years but what it did for me was it made me realize that and and this was an extent happening my first marriage I've, I've been married twice the second one was a good one i'm still in that one <laughs> yeah but um in my first marriage i ended up marrying a narcissist um who cheated on me which is which is a blueprint i got from my parents mm. you know so um but what what i did differently was i didn't tolerate that mm. I, I chose to divorce him um, and I chose to, to do things differently. I didn't want to impart the lesson to my daughters, to, to my daughter, I only had one at the time, to say that it was okay for a man to treat a woman like this mm -hmm. and that you have to stand by your man and that you have to, and that you can tolerate that kind of behavior. Um, I, and, I, and I certainly didn't want to f make, make this mistake that my mom did and say to her one day, oh, I stayed with your dad for, for your sake. Mm. And so that's how, it ch that's how it changed things and, and it played out. And that was the healthiest decision that I made in my recovery was to actually get a divorce. Yeah, I think I that, that um, your mother. Yeah. <laughs> I have some feelings. I don't even know her and I'm like, I have some feelings. Do you know what's interesting for me is that you say that, um, and I mean, your mom's now heard of the book and into uh -huh, yeah. And no, but, but they don't talk about it. Ever. So, <laughs> ever. So is the book a, an issue that she skirts around? I'm, I'm really the curious book, about how she's taken the book. The book is a non-event. Okay. It, it, um, they're talking to each other about it. But no one's talking to me about it. I don't know who's read it. Um, I think my brother has read it. No, my brother has read it. But I had to hear from my cousin that uh, about his experience of the book. Um, but my mom was like, "Congratulations on the book." But and then and then it was like it never happened. 
my dad actually consciously chose not to read the book because he said he didn't want to hear the truth about himself mm. from my perspective. Mm. And then it was never spoken about again. So don't so they, about it ever. They, but they hold on to they hold they're holding on tight to 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 that belief system uh, about not speaking about it. And I and almost trying to shame me into opening this can of worms and now they're like family worms everywhere <laughs> and and um and i refused to be you know because I, I needed to speak my truth and i'm not saying that it's anybody else's experience i'm saying this is my experience this is my truth this is my story what's really interesting is i read a memoir called heavy by kiosk oh. lehman which is absolutely stunning. Okay. But he writes this memoir to his mom. Um, and um, the mom responds in a letter. And she says something really powerful, which echoes what your dad has said. She says in her letter, these are your memories. Mm. And in a way, that's what your dad yeah. is saying. Yeah. He's saying, I actually, I know there are certain things that I did that are horrible. But I don't, but I don't want to, I don't I don't want to enter that space yeah. because it means I have to be held accountable yeah. for those things. Yeah. What, speaking about your dad, one of the interesting things for me that I, I, I wanted us to talk about was the relationship with men in this book. Mm. There are various <laughs> relationships at various points, yeah. you know, with men in the relationship. I'm thinking particularly about the relationship with William. Yeah. Mm. Um, and then William. the relationship with your first husband, mm. the relationship with your father, mm. and then later, the, or before the relationship with your first husband, the relationship with Darren, mm. right? Which... You know, I saw Ugh. Darren coming and I was like, no, don't do this, don't do this. I see something happened in slow motion and I'm so invested in the book. It was like a Matrix moment. Eh, yeah. where At that like, point, I actually put the book away and I was like, you know what, Desiree, no. Desiree, no, not today, not today. But I, I think to maybe to place it chronologically because mm. I, I think it would be interesting to see how the first relationships that she has with men, mm. they inform mm. subsequent blueprints. Mm. So the relationship with your father and then the relationship with your brother, yeah. right, which is also informed by your family dynamics. Yeah. Your relationship then with Darren, with, with William. Mm. And then with yeah. and then And then with Darren and then with your first husband. And then <laughs> with... Why are you dying? <laughs> because we were so... You're not like Darren. You're Darren. I'm just like, I'm ready. I just want to talk. But also, William, mm -mm. William's also problematic, but he's just problematic in different ways that make him a little bit more palatable. Yeah, because his problematicness is not as overt. But yeah. mm -mm. William's also problematic. Yeah, and then your first husband and your and your second husband, who yeah. is just great, like you yeah. know, and and that sort of even there's a tenderness with which you write about your second husband. Yeah, yes. you, you you can feel the transformation yeah. in following the trajectory of the relationship you've had with men. Yeah. And the vulnerability that she then allows herself to have with, with her with, second within husband. Within that marriage. Within yeah. that marriage that doesn't really particularly exist no. anywhere else and is an interesting side of you to see. No, because my, my trajectory of my relationships was just about fixing and saving. Yes. You know, so I was, I, I, was a, I, I watched my mother try to change my dad. Yes. Um, I adored my dad. Um, for for all his flaws, for all his qualities, I absolutely adored him. So so that set that blueprint, um, both in how because I believe that that parents teach their children how to treat the other gender in relationships and how to be and how to own and take agency of of their own gender within relationships. 
So, um, so that set the tone. That that was that was what I witnessed. You know, that was all that I saw of how um, men and women are supposed to treat each other. And so I took that forward, and I I chose. It was like, it was like, I met someone. The alarm bells went off, and instead of running the other way, I was like. I can fix you. I can change you. Uh, you know, oh, oh. <laughs> even even I'm having a face palm moment. <laughs> um, but um, so so when I met when I met William and the, uh, I always say that that was a healthy relationship. But he was the healthy part. Mm. Um, but he kind of enabled that in me. You know, um, and and there was also there was also. I don't want to give too much away, but but no, but but infidelity is a theme through throughout the book, um, and so I found myself magnetically attracted to to these these toxic men, um, and even my second husband. And I need to be honest about this: is like he he's also a recovering addict. So once again, I'm attracted to the the broken, the damaged, you know. And um, and with, Dar- with Darren, <laughs> oh Darren, Darren was just the idea of 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 him. You know, he was he was smart and he was funny and he was charming and he was popular, and I loved the idea of him and the relationship with him. And I honestly thought that my love and the enormity and power of it could change and eradicate someone else's addiction. How powerful is that statement? How powerful is that statement? Because in many ways, is that not reflective of the kind of relationship that so many women have with their partners and why they continue to recreate these very toxic relationships is this idea that you can, your love is so sufficient and your love is so great that you can out-love the toxicity of someone, be it your your parents, be it your children, be it your partner, that that your role as a woman is to have have such great omnipotent kind of love. Um, and also there's an arrogance. We need to yeah, be honest about yeah, yeah. this. No, there's an arrogance that you are saying you in your humanly capacity yes. are able to love someone, love someone through things. I love you know? I can love someone and better. Because I remember the moment the moment where Dan asked you to be his girlfriend and then trails off to be like I'm a heroin addict and you're like I love you through it. You know <laughs> like just that like for me I was like whoa because it it, it, it it made me reflect on my own life about some of the uh, interactions and relations that I've entered into mm. about making a decision that I am going to change this person. But you know what? I think that people who grow up with a scarcity of love yes. have an abundance of love to give, mm. yes. and and because they have to to make up for it in some way. So so with that scarcity came came this overinflated sense of 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 self, of, of, of self yeah. and the power of my love, um, because. In my heart, I had had so much love to give, and it had no outlet. Mm. You know, it had nowhere to go. It wasn't reciprocated in any way, and so, so yes, and 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 I thought, and I thought that was perfectly normal. And I, you know, seen train spotting, so I could <laughs> fix a heroin addict. <laughs> and I mean, Darren also introduces us to a particular moment in your life, and right? a particular side of you yeah. as well, because <laughs> prior to that, you are dysfunctionally functional. Yeah. So you are dysfunctional in many, many striking ways, but Thank you're you. still... <laughs> with all the love. I mean, the acting girl. With all the love. <laughs> we need to talk about some <laughs> we'll, we'll get there. 
you are dysfunctionally functional and you're still able to, to maintain this, this veneer, yeah. right? And it makes yeah. me think of how many highly functional people there are who have so much dysfunction in their lives. Oh. And that was a moment for me because it's also a moment for young professionals who are reading this book to have a moment yeah. of reflection because so much, so many of us just like sway through life dysfunctionally functional yeah. and never really do the yeah. hard work of, of really uncovering what drives so much of our dysfunction. And that and, was a moment for and you. And I see that in my practice all the time is of, pe of people who are, and young people as well, who are pretending that everything's okay, but rumbling underneath all of that is so much pain and so much suffering and so much trauma and so much damage. And, and, they're not, and thank goodness they're coming to therapy to look at it, but there's so many who aren't. Mm. They're just continuing on and pretending that everything's okay and, and, and not taking the symptoms of, of, of the pain seriously. Mm. Um, but yes, he, 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 does, he does open up that other side to me, mm. um, the shadow side, mm. as I like to call it. Yeah. And off I went. <laughs> and, and as I do everything, I did it to the extreme. Do you not feel that that, I felt in reading this book, that that particular unraveling was a very was very necessary because it was always bound to happen it may mm. not have been with darren mm. in the way that it did but that unraveling was always going to take place because the childhood trauma mm. that was you know like leclopinol was saying that trauma is really embedded at a cellular level that that, yeah. that dysfunction that you are functioning but in a very very dysfunctional destructive yeah. ways almost inevitably always comes out in yeah. one way or another. It finds and it's an normalized, outlet. right? It's normalized Absolutely. as in this is supposed to happen. So for me, I felt that in reading this unraveling, this shadowing, mm. I felt that in some instances, you knew that the decisions you were making were incorrect. Yes. But you were like, actually, this is fine. Like, you know, this is, this is fine. I'm here in yeah. this moment yeah. and this is fine. But also the fact that I, I always say this to myself, I think that for people who grew up with trauma, who grew up with a lack of love, sometimes we don't believe we deserve happiness. Oh, and so we run into destruction wide open, yeah. fully aware of the consequences and just continuing. Absolutely, and we, we don't care, you know, and, and I still struggle to, to, to be present and I still struggle with happiness now because of my past, you know. I still struggle to be in the moment and go, this is a happy moment and without the impending sense of doom, oh, it's all going to fall apart now that I'm happy, you know. Um, but, but I've forgotten the question. So I think one of the, 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 the key takings, the key oh, things. Oh, wait, I was going to say, mm -hmm. it's that what I was going to say, sorry to interrupt, is that it was when I found the heroin, I found the anesthetic yeah. to yeah. all the emotional pain. Mm. And I think that's why um, I, went, I went into it because I finally, I finally found it, mm. you know. I finally found something that, could, that I saw as the solution. Um, it took away everything. It was like, it was really like being in the womb again. Mm. It was jarring as well for yeah. me, like just walking, journeying with you mm. through that period of your life was jarring yeah like i was talking to someone i was like it's gut-wrenching yeah right uh because it was just like there are moments when i'm like Desiree, <laughs> don't do it don't do it i'm like stop stop <laughs> but i i, I really want to go deeper into but that. that adversity 
um, and and those trials and that that had those harrowing moments and that that entire period of my life, um, I wouldn't change it. Mm. I, I really wouldn't change it because it has it has um, made me the person that I am today, and it has uh, turned that adversity into opportunity, and um, it's it's a part of my life that that if, if I hadn't been in, ad in, in addiction, I wouldn't have found recovery. F and if I hadn't found recovery, I wouldn't have be thriving in my life right now. So with the theme of, of addiction, um, you now work in the space of addiction and mm -hmm. you've now, you've written this book. And in, in many ways, a memoir is particularly difficult to write because it forces you to go back Mm -hmm. And into some very painful parts of your life, and some some parts where you often found yourself wanting, in the ways that you maybe have behaved and etc. Mm -hmm. Now that you, you know, Maya Angelou has that quote: "Now that you know better, you do better." Do better yeah. But writing a memoir is almost the opposite of that yeah. because you go back to the spaces in your life when you didn't do better because many ways you didn't know better. Yeah. And I I want to know from you in writing this and in your your journey with your addiction. Um, I mean, it starts a little, it starts quite early. Yeah. You, know, you talk about being so, a child and, and masturbating almost just yeah. vigorously and, yeah. and it's not spoken about at that moment and not addressed at that moment. Mm -hmm. And then comes the the substances, yeah. right? And then we almost see you gradually decline. It's it's the alcohol and then it's, it's the, the, hard drugs, the hard yeah. drugs, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. And I want to know about that journey and also what writing about that journey did for you in reflection. Um, I can speak to the writing about the journey and I am very thankful for a thing called therapy. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> um, there was times where I took entire chapters to my therapist and I was like, okay, we're going to do this today because I'd, be, I'd, I'd have to go to really dark places, mm. as you've seen in the book, and I'd have to recall and, and, and recollect certain, certain memories. And I realized that I hadn't digested some of that stuff and I hadn't processed some of that stuff. Mm. And so I would like take the chapter to therapy and go read it and let's process this. And, and that happened throughout the entire um, process of writing. And in terms of the progression of my addiction, it was just, I felt I was in control. Mm -hmm. I was, I, th I felt like I, I, had, I had it all together, you know? Um, and if, even with, with taking like 10 to 15 slimming tablets a day at the age of 17, I didn't think there was anything wrong with that, you know? <laughs> you know, but, um, and then the alcohol happened and I vowed I'd never drink, but then I drank because I met a boy. You know, and which is the theme throughout the book is like about how my addiction progresses in re relation to my relationships with men. Mm -hmm. um, and so there my codependency sticks out like a sore thumb, you know, mm -hmm. and my need to, to rescue, fix, and also my need to be healed mm -hmm. and, and be loved. And um, so any affirmation and attention, I was just like, Choose me, choose me, I'm your girl, you know. And there's also a sense of obsession. Mm -hmm. There's an obsession in relation to the men 
And I think it's an obsession to this love that we're seeking. Yeah. So you're seeking for this love. So you're obsessed with the idea of it exists in mm. a particular body. Mm. But there's also an obsession to to look a certain way. So yes. there's also this like societal gaze. Yeah. So in some ways, the slimming tablet was that if I looked a certain way, yeah. if my hair was straight, if I was more lighter, if I was this, then people would love me. And it Absolutely. also points to the beginnings of what you see are really personality traits that then set mm. the the tone for some of the other behavior in the book you know so when you're a child and you then start to obsess about acting but i was was obsessed with the idea of not being enough yes you know it i was not enough my skin color wasn't enough my hair wasn't straight enough i wasn't thin enough i wasn't pretty enough i wasn't tall enough definitely um i wasn't enough and so I needed to become whatever you wanted me to be mm. in order that you like me, mm. in order that I that you accept me, in order that I fit in. And and I did that and I, I excelled at acting. Yes. Because it came so naturally to me because I'd been pretending my whole life and so but then I had an, an actually innate talent for it. But it also reinforced my ability mm. to be able to pretend that everything was okay when it was absolutely rotting and crumbling inside. Mm. <sighs> you see, this book is just like... It's powerful. Honestly, after I read it, Alma finished reading the book first and she's like, girl, um, uh, let me know when you're done. <laughs> and then I was done and I was like, look... Look, we need to have a phone call about this book. No, That's really. what we need. We to had do. a whole phone call. Seriously. And we, we need sat to. and I mean so we do a lot of preparation for podcasts. But that that phone call was not a preparation. That phone call was it's a debriefing. <laughs> not really a debriefing. Um it was it was the idea that your book in many ways is so representative of the lives of of black people of people of color in so many ways of the generational trauma of the you think of your grandmother and we we obviously don't want to give away too much of the book but your grandmother and her relationship with men and how that then sets the tone for your mother's relationship Mm -hmm. with men and your mother's relationship with men and how that then sets the tone Mm -hmm. for your relationship with men and not just that but also you think of the the ways in which your father's addictions then set the tone for your subsequent addictions, mm-hmm. right? And, and you say that, you're like, there are moments in the book where you say, it is then that I realize that I'm my father's daughter. daughter. Mm-hmm. But then you think of how much of our our family's things are mm-hmm. shrouded in secrecy yeah. and what that then does for, for our healing and what that then does for our ability to recognize problematic patterns and then not recreate them mm. yeah and and i want to talk about that that facade of a perfect family and what what mm. that meant for you not only in growing up mm. but in also then writing this book because it meant that you had to shatter this facade that in many ways yeah. had set you apart from because classism is a real thing and we must talk about shatter. it <laughs> literally when you get the book you'll know why i use that metaphor but in many ways, your our families pride themselves on almost this classist distinction from yeah. from others. Like we're not like. But those there's also people. a sense a sense of anti-blackness that comes with this class distinction, right? Yes. So growing up in a in a in a people who are racialized as colored in this country. Yes. Yeah. 
you there is a we're not like them yeah. so we're not like those kafirs yeah. we're, we're yeah, different but, but that happens in 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 colored communities as well you know like we were called super coloreds mm. because we we had the nice house in the nice suburb and we had the the manicured gardens and yes. we had this the private schools and stuff like that and the fair coloreds and the dark coloreds and the and there's like within your own culture and community there is there are these distinctions yes. and and there these 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 um stigmas that you have to fight and um so it's it's hard to find self acceptance when there's no acceptance from your from your own community so it's hard for you to to look inward and and to say that i'm okay when the world around you is telling you that that you're not okay and even or your that mom. you're different so there's yeah. instances yeah. where your mom said if you weren't that dark we wouldn't be sitting here yeah. oh that was a life changing moment and the politics of here i really i as a black <laughs> <I'm some>. <laughs> <laughs> so firstly this is funny because i am traveling to the us um for 7 weeks sometime in june oh. and um Blessings. one of the emails definitely one of the the emails i got sent out was about our hair and there was a there was an email sent out that said listen in the past people have taken part in this have been shocked by it's actually scary that i remember this email word for word have been shocked by the unavailability and the the high cost of hair care for african women in the us no right? they did not and i mean it's it's not false yeah, you know it's yeah. not false but it was so jarring let me tell yeah. you it ain't false girl Like Let me it was jarring for me as a black woman because the politics of hair is so intimately tied yeah. to beauty yeah. standards it's so intimately tied to the ways in which black women and I suppose other women of color as well are constantly reminded that we are not the standard of norm. No, exactly. And right? our hair doesn't make the swishing sound when we when we move and, our head and from side to side. And for me reading reading your battles with your hair I was like, "Lord, <laughs> if this is not our lives, if this is not our lives to constantly be straightening your hair, yeah burning it breaking it doing all of these things and i really want to talk about the politics of hair as a metaphor for the ways in which you struggle to then find self acceptance and yeah. how your hair which now is like you know but you know what it's like the thing is that i only discovered i had this hair at 23 when i went to a hairdresser and he said oh you've got like spiral curls and i was like i ha- i have what <laughs> because my whole life had been about straightening my hair and getting it as straight as possible and so he said no you've got beautiful curls like i'm going to cut your hair and then you'll just see just leave it just wash and go and it was only at the age of 23 that i discovered my own hair because uh, for years it had been about how straight it was mm. and i had suffered and my mum my mum had always said you have to suffer to be beautiful oof that line i've heard i've heard that line in and i was like is this is there a whatsapp group that <laughs> just had of color ten because mrs zulu you know my mum's always saying that she was always just like oh you have to suffer for beauty yeah And so that's the lesson that was passed on to me and I was like okay so I have to change myself and I have to torment myself and my hair has to fall out and I have to burn it and I have to and I have to wear curlers and which was so counterintuitive <laughs> um but but to to be acceptable mm, just mm. to be acceptable that what I was authentically was not enough mm. was not pretty enough was not was not good enough And so the the struggle with hair is a <laughs> very real struggle, you know. Mm-hmm. And and but now yeah, and 
now 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 I look back at it and I just think like if I couldn't even be accepted by my mom just for my hair what about my other qualities and so that's when I took on roles like being the good girl and excelling and then being the rebel and pushing up against everything and I took on all of these these different roles that I played out and they were all about getting attention and affirmation either whether it be positive or whether it be negative it was all the same to me at the end you know as long as someone's paying attention then I'm doing okay as long as there's an audience you know I'm doing okay I think that's so powerful because there, there is a feeling that for us as black women, as women of color, we are always having to perform in order to receive acceptance and in order to receive Absolutely. love. So when you think about the fact that something almost as nondescript as hair is, is a major, major, like a negative thing for you, then you think about all your flaws, all your not so nice things, mm. all the things that you do that are shortcomings that almost every human has, mm. that then you wonder how you are meant to then process the totality of your person. Yeah. So yeah. I'm going to be super nerdy <laughs> and be like, the politics of hair are so much deeper because when you think about the case in the US, for instance, when you think about equality jurisprudence, mm. black women were deprived of wearing their hair a certain way. Yes. And, and when Kimberly Crenshaw speaks about intersectionality and looks at naming the different ways in which black women were marginalized because of the law, one of the cases she looks at is black women's hair, hair. how yeah. black women were not allowed to wear hair in a certain way in the workplace, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and, and that, is how deeply hair rooted that the law was yeah. even involved in legislating and ruling what black women's hair is supposed yeah. to be like. And so we're it's still much having deeper. those issues in schools in South Africa. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So so it's 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 so it's, then, it's it's deep. Yeah. It's very deep. I also wanted to talk about the choices of certain words that you used in the book, which for me, it just took me aback, you know, because we're in 2019 and people will be like woke politics, but it's really not that. It's just like a, a, a sort of morality that's attached to certain words. So there are two words that you use in the book, and I, I want to believe that you did that intentionally, so I wanted to talk to you mm -hmm. about it. Mm -hmm. So one of the words that you use is sodomy. Mm -hmm. and, and, and we know the particular tinge that is attached to the word sodomy. And I know you were using it to describe the act that was mm. happening. So, like, it was rape, yeah. right? And, 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 and I wanted to know, did, was it, like, to show the, the visceral nature of what was happening? It, it, was, it was exactly that. It was to describe um, and set the scene and to, to, to give details as to what the act was, the act of the rape was actually about um, mm. in as much detail as possible. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And then the other word that you use is prostitution, mm. right? As opposed to sex, sex work. work yeah. And I wanted to know why that was. But also to, to then add on to that, sorry, yeah. you, to add on to that, uh, you mentioned earlier your conversation with your, with your daughter about mm. sex work. And I mean, we've spoken about the language, but also just the, 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 the feelings around that you now have around that particular time in your life. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, we are having conversations, very active conversations about the fact that sex work is work. Yeah. And, oh, yeah. and that a lot of the language around it reduces mm -hmm. it and there's a lot of morality attached to the, to the work, to the language used around it. 
but we don't we're not often paying attention to the feelings of, mm. of sex workers so we yeah. don't have discussions with them so i want to know particularly in tying in with the talk question about the language sure. around sex work but also about your feelings about that particular um, point in life. your life i used the word prostitution because at that time that's the word that was used mm-hmm. um that's very you true. know and so sex work I, i'm not quite sure when sex work evolved into the terminology that is used and i use it now and i describe myself as a sex worker um because i was working <laughs> <laughs> um but and also because because it was humiliating Mm. because it was prostitution it was an economic exchange of either drugs for sex or money for sex and so i used that word because it it encapsulated the feelings that i had around myself at the time Mm. and in answer to your question that's how i felt Mm. it's like i had to i had to use to forget and then i had to 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 have sex to use and then i had to use to forget um, so I felt when I came into recovery, I felt so much shame mm. around having having done that, even though dur- at the time I knew it was a means to an end and that's all I had left to bargain with, really. Mm. Um, and so and so it became a viable source of income and a viable way to to obtain drugs. But um, I had so much shame around that. Mm. And it was it was one of the few things that I, that I spoke about um, and eventually, like, it, it, it happened it, it, in the book, it's in the book, um, but um, I, I broke the shame of it. And because um, by telling people about it and they were like, oh, no, I did that too, you know, recovering addicts, I did that too. And I was like, oh, I'm not alone. <laughs> uh, you know, that I, I, I was desperate and, and I needed to do that. Um, and... It was it was an absolute means to an end, but I, f- I fully respect people, uh, sex workers now. And I actually had a conversation with one the other day, um, outside <laughs> outside an NA meeting of all places. <laughs> but I was waiting for the meeting to start, and because because I because I, I I can connect with that and I can relate to that and and I and I saw her and I have seen her a few times in that in that particular area and we were just and I was just talking to her and having a normal conversation with her because I respect her grind you know mm-hmm. um, because we don't know everybody's story mm-hmm. we, we really don't we don't know what drives and motivates people to do what they do but but if some people end up in in that in that situation then 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 that's that's where they end up i love what you say because that this is almost the theme that we've gotten from the book that in telling your story and reclaim, in reclaiming so many of the experiences that happened to you there was a there was a removal of the shame because mm. so much of the power of abuse and the power of addiction is lies in the shame that's associated with it. Absolutely. So in the shame that then accompanies the morality and the moralizing that comes with it, mm. there there is a very powerful act in people telling their stories and breaking the shame. Mm. Um, I also want to talk about. What I mean, mental health comes through often in the book, and even as a child, we start to see that you know. Desiree might have some some mental ah, health. That's a right in the head. <laughs> <laughs> some mental health issues, but yeah. 
but we we do that thing that we do as a community, right? Where we just say, ah, it's her personality. Yeah, and she's being hyperactive. Oh, um, you know, you hear you hear people say, oh, just small doses of madness, and even that language of madness. And moody. And, and moody. moody. Yeah. It's just moods. Uh, she's going through a phase. Yeah. <laughs> it's a phase. It's mood. It happens to be bipolar, but it's a phase. <laughs> um, and then you receive a diagnosis mm. as an adult mm. after this almost lifetime of this, you know, this this these mental health issues. Mm. And it's such a powerful moment in the book when you receive this diagnosis because in many ways it affirms it affirms you. So I want to yeah. know what receiving this diagnosis regard, with regards to your mental health meant for you and what it did moving forward. It was such a huge relief for me to discover that there was a reason. Mm. Um, and, I'm, and I'm not saying that that it propelled all of my behavior because I had free will and I made decisions, but that I had this, uh, I actually had a disorder, I had a mental health issue. Um, and, I, and I have quite a few now <laughs> that I've discovered along the way that have been diagnosed. Mm. And I'm not ashamed to say it because, and it needs to be said because along with addiction, mental health issues need to be destigmatized. Mm-hmm. We need to break the shame and the fear around, um, I mean, there's a stat that says 40%, it's a, it's a UN stat that says 40% of people are struggling with mental health issues. And and we don't know if they're receiving help for that. So mm. about like 40% of the people on the planet, nearly half of us are walking around struggling. Mm. And and some people don't even know it and, and they can't ask for the help that they need. But it was a relief to know that, that I had something that and I could then treat it and then I could then manage it. Mm. Um, and which I've been doing successfully with a crack team of experts <laughs> um, for the last few years. No, that's so, really so good. that I have, you know, so that's I can, powerful. Yeah. yeah. I think also, you know, we don't want to talk about all the bad because there is some good. There's there. a lot of good um, and you want to talk about it. And um, one of the good things that I found from the book is towards the end of the book, I think after your marriage with... Robert, your first husband, you really make a decision to be like, this shit needs to stop. Mm-hmm. I, I ain't gonna do any of this you shit You go no and more. get your whole life, like from whichever suitcase it was in. I reclaimed <laughs> it. I reclaimed that, yeah. yeah. It's powerful. And, 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 and so there's this introduction of this blended family, right? Mm. There's this journey that your second husband takes with your daughter, your yeah. first daughter. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and the patience. She's mm. a lot of patience. That man's patience, saintly. Saintly. But also the 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 fact that he treats your daughter as a sentient being and doesn't mm. who is allowed to have her own reservations. Absolutely. He and respected is allowed, that. And he respected that. And that was and you make a note to note that in the book. Yeah. That she talk about the patience but also the respect that he has mm-hmm. for your daughter. And it's he an had, interesting observation. And he had no expectations that she would instantly like him or needed to like him or had to like him or, or had to accept that because we'd been, uh, my daughter and I had been uh, alone for, for, for quite a while, mm-hmm. you know, and then he arrives and then she's like, who's this guy, <laughs> you know, and, <laughs> so, and so she was, she was absolutely acceptably suspicious and, and, mm-hmm. and wary and, and he gave her the space and it took years, but he gave her that space to, to make the decision to love him. 
you know, because he loved her. But he said, like, I'm not forcing anything on her. She needs to come to that conclusion herself. And then I write about it in the book, and it's it's still one of the best moments of my life. Where don't give it away. Well, I won't give it away, but it's well, that, it, I, that it was, was also a precious it, moment it was for so, me. Yeah, and it's such a, a beautiful moment. My heart was just like ah. <laughs> But 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 I was jumping I, I with just, glee. I just want to say that like, so it is. I want this book to be. I know that it's it's brutal, and I know that it's it's honest and harrowing in places. But I want it to be about hope and yes. and, and reclamation and redemption. Um, that's that's a message that I, I do want to convey. That there is always hope. Speaking of hope, you go back to school, <laughs> and that for me is a, is, a, is, a, is an interesting moment for a lot of reasons. It is so interesting yeah. for a lot of reasons. Um, we're in a society that almost prides, that uses education as one of the barometers to make very distinct to class differences, yeah. right? And to measure um, success. And to, and to measure success, but it's also in the reality of the socioeconomics of this country, which are very racialized, yeah. then excludes a large portion, portion of, of, of this country's population. Mm. You go back to school, and I get worried when you go back to school because I feel that a lot of the, the preceding traits that you had worked so hard to, to mm. overcome mm. then start to maybe slightly rear themselves. And there's a, there's a little bit of imposter syndrome that mm. comes out. You're highly accomplished when you go to school. You've mm. done things that a yeah. lot of people would not have even been able to yeah. imagine doing. But you go to school, and there are almost these feelings of imposter syndrome that that take place yeah. and I, I want you to just take us through that moment what motivated you to go back to school but also what what that imposter syndrome that you felt like played itself out in mm -hmm. that moment I, I went back to school because I had given up my place and I'd always wanted to go to to not just UCT, but to tertiary institution. I had wanted to do that. And even though I was a practicing, and I am a practicing counselor, I wanted that piece of paper, man. Mm. I, I really did. And, and I'm, I'm not ashamed to say that. Um, and I wanted to, I wanted to further myself and I wanted to expand my knowledge base and I wanted to expand my repertoire of how I worked with clients. But more than that, I wanted. I had such a huge regret about giving up my place at UCT when I matriculated, that when the opportunity came for me to to go back to to varsity, I was like, it's like a cycle, <laughs> and the circle has turned, and I'm here again, and I'm um, I have this opportunity to to to, to have a do over, mm. you know. Mm. And um, I don't think it was it, it was imposter syndrome, but um, but if that's how it's read, then then I respect that because you know that's your experience. Yeah. <laughs> and I only say imposter syndrome because in reading this book, I felt that here was this brilliant, accomplished woman who had done so much in whose repertoire. Mm -hmm really ex like exceeded far for your peers firstly yeah, yeah. and even the people who you were then signing up to be in that class with yeah and even in that moment there was still a feeling of am i deserving am, am of i this? good enough but yes. I, but i didn't feel okay if that's what you mean i didn't feel like uh, because i got in on recognition i don't have an undergrad so i got in on recognition of prior learning so i had to like prove myself to people again yeah. so i had to prove that i was good enough to get into this program and I had to do a portfolio and I had to do a panel interview and I ha and once again I was like 
am I going to be good enough? Mm. Are they going to accept me? So I was back there again, if, mm. if, that's, what you, if that's what you mean by that. Mm. I was back there again. But I don't regret it at all. I've got June exams coming. <laughs> <laughs> um, and Desiree, oh, sorry. Um, Desiree, thank you so much. Sure. From the bottom of my heart and from the bottom of Alma's heart, Thank you really so much mm. for one writing this book, mm. but also mm. for being for recognizing the work that we do as the cheekinators mm. and being like, I believe that you will treat my work in the care. Yeah, I kind of harassed you guys. That was not a So thank you so much for writing this book. I think that there are not enough books that uncover the things that you uncover, and I feel that because person someone read one book, they're like, oh, that's fine. No, we need every book to be written because there are dimensions and dimensions that aren't there so thank you very much for writing so beautifully sure guys but i i want us to you know just for you to read part of the prologue so that people can can just get a taste of what's in store and and before we we read the prologue because we will be just wrapping up after that i wants us to just echo what Lechokonolo is saying. And I mean, you quote Anayinin in the beginning of the book, and you say, I take pleasure in my transformations. Mm. I look quiet and consistent, but few know how many women there are in me. Mm. And for me, that is the summary of that this epigraph. book. That epigraph. Okay. That epigraph. <laughs> this book, you know there are quotes that perfectly summarize a book, but this book is it because in many ways, this book is hopeful. This book is hopeful. Oh, this book is about the many ways, the many chances of redemption that exist for us. And we don't often hear about the redemption for black women or for women of color. color we don't yeah. often hear about us rising from, from very deep falls and yeah. coming out of that in so many ways, having been strengthened by that experience. Oh, that means the world to me. Thank and you. And for me, reading about your transformations was a hopeful, because we talk a lot about this book is staring and it's like rooting. Hard and heart and heartbreaking but it's in many many more ways mm. a book of hope and a book of of transformation and a book of redemption and of what it means to offer the grace to the people in our lives to start over and over again as many times as they need to then my work here is done <laughs> thank you so much wow and i think also just to again reiterate and echo what alma is saying for me i am so happy that you ended at the place that you ended. Mm. Because journeying with you, I was like, I hope she finds happiness. Mm. Mm. And I hope she finds love. But mm. more importantly, I hope she finds mm. herself. Yes. Yes. And, and and for me, I felt that's what is it. Mm. That yes. you had you had come to mm. find yourself. Found In the place. highest form. Yeah. And, and the highest form looked so beautiful. Mm. And that was so... So inspiring. I <laughs> I was going through it. <laughs> you were there. In it. Okay, <laughs> so where would you like me to read to? Uh, you can start here and then maybe just end here. Okay. Words are my drug of choice. They are my refuge, my panacea. They are the antidote to the poison that runs through every artery and vein of the anatomy of my childhood. Long before the hastily inhaled cigarettes that burnt my throat during second break, half hiding in between the crumbling headstones of the long-forgotten brides of Jesus up at the small convent cemetery, long before the bottles of Bioplus mixed in cups of too strong coffee that kept my heavy eyelids from drooping while I pored over mind-numbing high school calculus equations and brain-crushing historical facts about dead people in disremembered places, 
long before the back end of the toothbrush connected with my epiglottis, forcing the acidic, bilious contents of my stomach to lurch out of my mouth, leaving telltale splatters across the toilet bowl, long before the shiny blister packs of slimming tablets that would make my heart race and jaw tremble, inspiring me to rub my hungry, hungry concave belly with reticent glee, long before that first sip of cheap red wine seeped its way into my parched veins and quenched my thirsty cells until it felt like I had come home at last. Mm-hmm. Also, can we talk about how poetically Desiree writes right. just a moment? Like, do, even as she was reading, you can hear the poetry. You yeah, can hear yeah. the poetry. The prose so, is beautiful. This is such a well-written, well-thought-out book, and I can only imagine how deeply it must have required you to introspect yeah. to be able to go to some really dark places but then also ascend to some really yeah. beautiful places and we are so privileged that you just allowed us a window into that Thank so you. at the chicken aces we're about to give land we're about to give land we are we have a very special rating system so you know the cheeky aces we are very contemporary <laughs> realizing the needs Why of, the, the, time, so? of the, yeah. times. the times of the times so we don't give our authors stars and popcorn and books <sighs> no we give our authors land okay so we sit at the land commission that is headed up by myself and the Tlokonolo. And we apportion land based on how much we've enjoyed your book, the necessary work, the work that remains to be done, etc., etc. So having sat very deeply with this book and with the work that you've done, Lithlok um, Nol and I have decided to apportion. Obviously, we want you to stay in the Viscop, so we will give you <laughs> land in the Western Cape. Yeah. And you guys are kidding, right? The land is No, coming. the land is coming. <laughs> We're giving you land in the Western Cape because that is where the land is. And that's where the... Yeah, wow. <laughs> and we want to give you... You know, there's this view, right? That you see the mountain and the apostles, mm, you know? Yeah. So we want to give you Bloberg so that you're able to, to <laughs> see... You, the beauty yeah. of Cape Town, oh. so that when you are writing more poetry, mm. more work, yes. that you're able to look at it from Bloberg. Mm. So we we are giving you Bloberg. Thank you mm. so much. Because really, just to say, Desiree, we really absolutely yep. enjoyed this memoir. I get all of Bloberg. You get all of Bloberg. All of it. All, all of, of it. The land yeah. is yours. Wow. <laughs> Thank you again for allowing us a window into your life, but also for allowing us this vulnerable conversation. We really appreciate um, the care that you took. I appreciate the opportunity and and thank you for your questions and for allowing me to reflect again on my life and my process. Yeah, so thank you very much. Um, Where can people find you? They can find me on Instagram, uh, believe.more.deeply. They can find me on Twitter, believe underscore deeply. They can find me on Facebook. I have an author page on Facebook. Um, and where else? What have I left out? So it's Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Twitter. Yeah. Do you have a website? I have a website. Yes. www.believemoredeeply.co.za Okay, so you, that's where you can find Desiree Anne. And please, please, please 
Don't DM her for a copy of the book. No PDFs. No <laughs> Stop it. Don't be letting the devil use you. Stop it. And stop borrowing copies. Buy your own. Please buy this book. I promise you, you will not regret purchasing this book. And you will not, you will not be the same after reading the book because you're going to do an examination of your own life. Mm. So until next time, uh, check us out on the next episode. And also, please, like, comment on the... Um, Podcast. the episode follow subscribe do all the things that you're supposed to do thank you very much until next bye. time bye